Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicNPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Laura J. Miller, Ph.D., who is author of Building Nature's Market, The Business and Politics of Natural Foods. Today we will discuss the evolution of the natural foods market. Laura J. Miller is Associate Professor of Sociology at Brandeis University. She received her Ph.D. in Sociology from the University of California, San Diego, and previously taught at the University of Western Ontario and Vassar College. Her research focuses on the intersection of cultural and economic factors within industries characterized by moral commitments to their products. Building Nature's Market, the Business and Politics of Natural Foods was published in 2017 by the University of Chicago Press. She is also the author of Reluctant Capitalists, Book Selling and the Culture of Consumption. Laura, welcome. Thank you for having me. What are we talking about when we say the natural foods market? Is there a universally agreed-upon definition for that? Not entirely. Uh, One of the peculiarities of this market is that natural is not a term defined in law, and and it also doesn't have a great deal of consensus in the popular imagination. Uh, Within the United States, organic is a federally regulated term, but not natural. But one of the things I try to do in my book is show how there was a natural foods market that developed beginning in the 19th century uh, that came to include all these different branches that we now refer to as natural foods, whether that includes organics, uh, sustainably grown food, uh, health food, uh, uh, food pr- uh, made without preservatives or additives. A lot of different aspects of this market can also include vegetarian foods uh, are uh, produced by many, many different companies, um, but that they do hold a certain kind of identity of interest and they are sold through particular outlets that specialize in such foods. In the beginning, as you were saying a moment ago, back in the early 19th century, these were foods taken directly from nature. Is that an accurate characterization? Yes. So when you look at the beginnings of the natural foods movement, which in the United States did start in the early 19th century, you had a very small group of people who believed that uh, it was really ordained by God that one should eat the most simple foods that could be obtained directly from nature. This is why uh, many such advocates were vegetarians, and they made reference to the Garden of Eden. So the idea was that we as uh, humans uh, should be eating the same kinds of foods that God provided to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Uh, and uh, therefore, ideally, one would produce such foods uh, for, for oneself. But because this was actually a very urban movement in the 19th century, and then, of course, all the way up to the present, most people could not grow such foods for themselves. And that's where the beginning of a market to supply natural foods uh, uh, happened. And certainly in the early era and along the way, many of the consumers of these natural foods were, by mainstream standards, a bit odd. Well, they were certainly considered as such. Uh, Really, up until very, very recently, the most ideal diet was one considered by most people to be heavy in meat, uh, to have lots of um, refined flour products, uh, so white flour uh, products, and not one that was very rich in fruits and vegetables. Uh, those were considered foods that, that people had to turn to when they could not afford something like meat. So the idea that uh, people might choose a vegetarian diet or they might choose to forego 
white flour uh, products, uh, bread made from white flour. They were just considered crazy. And there was a great deal of mockery towards people who uh, adopted a natural foods diet. And again, this lasted not just through the 19th century, not just through the early 20th century, but all the way up uh, until the 21st century. Even today, I would hazard to say there is a certain disdain, perhaps, or sideways glance by part of our mainstream population to the segment of the population that is really focused on this natural foods movement. Would you say that's accurate? Yes, yes, I would. Uh, these kinds of stereotypes, uh, uh, it takes a long time, I think, for them to die down. I should also add that it wasn't just popular culture that was directing a great deal of um, mockery towards natural foods advocates, but it was medical professionals and uh, both federal and state governments that really condemned the advocacy of natural foods all the way up through most of the 20th century. And, of course, there were powerful forces at play that we still have powerful forces at play today, business and political that were pushing in one direction and another. An example of that back in the 19th century that you mentioned in your book is John Harvey Kellogg. Tell us about him, if you would. Well, John Harvey Kellogg was really a key figure, if not the key figure, in the development of a true natural foods market. So prior to Kellogg, uh, uh, prior to, say, the 1870s, you had very occasional groups of people who might provide, say, a provision store to get the best fruits and vegetables they can for people uh, who, who believed in natural foods. Or you might have uh, merchants who sold flour that today we would describe as whole grain flour. But there really wasn't a very organized market for natural foods until the 1870s. And there were a few people who were involved, but Kellogg was uh, particularly important. He was part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and this is a group that to this day advocates a vegetarian diet. And Kellogg ran a what was then called a sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan. It was a Seventh-day Adventist sanitarium directed at helping people who had various ailments. Uh, and also it provided a platform for Kellogg to engage in lectures and writing and other forms of advocacy of his views about health, nutrition, and, and Christianity. So what happened then around uh, the 1870s, 1880s, is that Kellogg and his brother uh, and his wife uh, started to develop what they called health foods. These were products that uh, were made from multiple ingredients. It wasn't just a single ingredient saying this is the best uh, uh, the best uh, uh, carrot we could grow, but instead they were developing more engineered products made from various ingredients that they claimed were especially healthful. And what became particularly important to their line of foods were, well, two types of products, some that were grain-based, uh, and these uh, turned into what we now know as cereals. Uh, the Kellogg's came up with cornflakes, for instance. But uh, the other form of food that they developed that became so important were meat substitutes to provide vegetarians with a way of enhancing their diets with uh, canned products that were made from nuts or wheat gluten or yeast, or other kinds of meat substitutes. One of the ideas then is that this was driven by a desire to make money, that this was a business. This, this was sort of the beginning of that, is that correct? Well, not entirely. 
Kellogg was himself very devoted to his religious beliefs and the ideas that uh, a proper diet and proper exercise and healthful living was important to maintaining both individual health and actually a good relationship with God and one's community. So Kellogg was really quite driven by, uh, by these ideals that were fundamentally based in his religion. What happened, though, is that these products turned out to be very popular uh, with at least a segment of, uh, of his followers, and therefore they had the potential to bring in a lot more financial resources. To uh, diverge just for a moment from John Harvey Kellogg's trajectory, his brother Will Kellogg ended up taking the cornflake business to form the company that we now know of as Kellogg's. And so Will, who was somewhat less um, devoted to the, the religious beliefs and really did understand the market potential of something like cornflakes and other breakfast cereals, he really left, uh, left the church and left John Harvey Kellogg and went off in a very different direction. Meanwhile, John Harvey Kellogg was still committed to the much smaller health food business, and he did have certain conflicts with other members of the church who believed he was showing too great an interest in the profit potential. But uh, I, I would maintain that up till his dying day, Kellogg really saw this as not primarily about a path to profit, but primarily a way to spread very important religious and ethical and health-enhancing ideals. What was the next step, if you will, in that growth of the industry. So we're still looking at a relatively small group of people back then who were interested in foods close to nature, perhaps now with several ingredients combined and with a longer shelf life than they would have had before. Yes. How, how did the politics and the business enter into the picture? Well, by the early 20th century, there were several other entrepreneurs who were starting to get involved in what was then called the health food business. Uh, it was primarily located in New York and California, though you also had manufacturers and health food stores cropping up elsewhere around the country. It was, as you say, still a very, very small and seemingly fringe kind of market. They uh, started to produce, for instance, supplements. Uh, the discovery of vitamins became very important to the health food industry. And uh, there was uh, this idea that one can produce vitamins that were taken from uh, natural products rather than synthetically made. And this was a way of deriving natural vitamins for a natural foods market. Vitamins and other kinds of supplements became the most important um, uh, financial mainstay of the health food market by, oh, I think it was probably by about the 1940s. But there were other kinds of products being developed as well. They were sold outside of conventional grocery stores. They were sold either by mail order or within these very small health food stores. And it was a very, very slowly growing market, but, but growing it was. There is a lot of controversy relating to vitamins and supplements to this day, they are completely separate from foods and other products. Tell us a little bit about that, if you would. Sure. Uh, I often found when I was doing my research and I was talking to people about this, and I get these puzzled looks, and they would say, what do vitamins have to do with natural foods? Because vitamins are pills, right? And and I think then that the way to understand that connection and understand the controversy that grew up around them is to uh, see the ways in which the health food industry 
positioned itself against a conventional food market, which included the production of something like synthetic vitamins. And what health food manufacturers claimed is that ideally we would get all the nutrients we need directly from food. But because we live in this highly industrialized society, because we don't have access to the best natural foods, we therefore do have to supplement them with these other kinds of substances that are derived from natural foods. So, again, I think this was a fairly sincere belief, but there was also certainly a financial incentive to hold this kind of belief because of the ways in which uh, supplements uh, um, the markup on supplements really from the start would have been much more than you would have had for something like uh, fresh produce. It's also just a whole lot easier to sell a packaged product that can sit on a shelf for months and months on end like supplements than it is to sell fresh foods. So the controversy around supplements really went in two directions. One was whether or not these should actually be considered natural foods and whether they are crowding out something like fresh produce from health food stores. The other controversy, which developed more in the mid-20th century, had to do with the adulteration of supplements. So the kinds of scandals we've now become all too familiar with, uh, with the ways in which certain supplements are found to have chemicals that are often very harmful uh, to, to people's health, that begins in the mid-20th century, very in, in um, not, not very frequently, but um, gradually more and more, uh, because of the adoption of supplements by people involved in bodybuilding, weightlifting, other kinds of athletic activities who are looking for a, a boost to their strength and endurance. So there was certainly a certain kind of corruption that happened to the supplement industry within the late 20th century, and that's been long been a thorn in the side of the health food industry. I've read from a, a book specifically on vitamins that the vast majority of the vitamins sold today are imported and that many of the ingredients are synthetic. How does that make peace, if you will, with this whole concept of natural? Uh, it's, it is an issue. Uh, a lot, I, I think that what it is is that ingredients are increasingly sourced from international uh, international places, so that when you find the great benefits of something like uh, bilberry, uh, which is not grown throughout the world, uh, the ready sources are quickly tapped, and then it becomes very, very expensive and difficult to find enough of these substances to satisfy the current market. So there is a, an incentive, uh, uh, as it were, to substitute the, the, the sources uh, that are claimed on a label with some kind of filler or other sorts of substitute. And when they are sourced internationally, it does become more difficult to track, uh, to track what's going on. Uh, what, what we do have, though, are certain people within the natural foods industry who try to take a stand on this, who've called for more testing of ingredients. Uh, and, uh, uh, for instance, uh, one of the retailers in the town where I live in, in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, has really gotten a reputation for only carrying goods uh, that they know uh, uh, really test as, as pure and are what they claim to be. But uh, it is, as, as you just mentioned, a real problem both for the image and the substance 
of the natural foods industry when so many supplements are not what they claim to be. And when there are problems with adulteration, sometimes it's benign. It just might be something like uh, rice, um, uh, ground up rice that acts as a filler. Um, and uh, though that may not be benign to people who have allergies, um, but in other cases, they're really dangerous kinds of chemicals that have been found in these supplements. And the health food industry on occasion really tries to clean up its act. And at other times it's looked the other way. Uh, so it, it, it's a real tension within the industry. How is it that they have such a protected status that where the government has a very clear and powerful oversight in many other aspects of our lives, they for the most part seem to leave the vitamin and supplement segment of the market unsupervised? Uh, that is a very complex history. Uh, so supplements today are defined as foods rather than drugs, and that's really the key distinction in how they are regulated. So if a substance is defined as a drug, it's going to have to engage in clinical trials and meet extremely uh, high tests for safety and efficacy before it can go on the market. If something is defined as a food, uh, yes, it has to meet certain safety regulations, but it does not actually have to meet any tests of efficacy. And to take the example of a carrot, what are we claiming a carrot can do other than fill us up? Well, some will claim it has benefits uh, um, uh, on the eyes or other kinds of health issues, but it, we quickly realize how foolish it would be to try to claim efficacy for everything that is called a food. So when we look back to the history of the supplement industry, we actually see a very long and contentious set of battles to uh, be able to claim that supplements are foods rather than drugs. And up until the 1970s, that was actually not settled at all. And the Food and Drug Administration engaged in a lot of actions against supplement makers, claiming that they were making unfounded uh, health claims uh, about the benefits, health benefits of their substances. And um, in many cases, manufacturers were fined, uh, on a few cases, sent to jail for the, the kinds of claims that they were making about, about their goods. Uh, finally, in the 1970s, there was federal legislation which uh, helped to really preserve the notion that a supplement is a food. And there were a couple backers in Congress, uh, Senator Orrin Hatch being one of the uh, primary uh, friends of the supplement industry, uh, that helped to create this kind of legislation. So today, there, there really are frequent attempts to try to change that definition of a supplement and make it more like a drug. And while there would be certain kinds of regulatory benefits, uh, I think that the supplement industry is understandably saying that that would also probably wipe out most supplements altogether. And it would make it both too expensive and too complex to put them on the market. And one of the main claims of the health food industry has long been that individuals should have the right to eat the kinds of foods they want as long as they're not causing direct harm because of the individual benefits to be gained from, from having these foods. If something is regulated as a drug, it can't be shown that just a few individuals are going to benefit from it, but you really have to have uh, a, a certain um, uh, proportion of, of people who are shown to benefit. And those kinds of direct health benefits from supplements are extremely difficult to prove. Uh, they probably would not meet the kinds of uh, the, the thresholds that are required by um, uh, uh, most um, 
Most evaluations of what we consider drugs or pharmaceuticals today. So it probably would wipe out most of the supplement industry if uh, these were to be reclassified as drugs. In addition to vitamin and supplements in packages and bottles, we also have seen food manufacturers embrace the idea of enhancing their foods with vitamins and nutrients that are supposed to make them healthier and better for you, perhaps take them out of the junk food category and give them Mm -hmm. a little bit of nutritional value. How did that come about? That was something that actually conventional food producers were very interested in doing. So when we look back at the discovery and the spread of vitamins back in, say, the 1930s, uh, there was a lot of interest in what we now call fortifying foods. And a lot of conventional food producers uh, were, were claiming that their foods were now better for people because of the addition of vitamins. Health food manufacturers took a somewhat different kind of route, uh, at least in those early days. So they were still trying to preserve the idea of a natural food that was less complex than you're going to get with conventional foods, and therefore they were actually less likely to engage in this kind of fortification than uh, conventional food companies were. Today, that that isn't entirely the case, but I think that what distinguishes the conventional food market from the natural foods market today are a couple things. One is that the natural foods market prides itself, again, with maybe the exception of uh, the supplements we were just talking about, um, but for other kinds of packaged foods, it prides itself on being very transparent about the source of its ingredients. And, um, uh, and, and also trying to, uh, claim that, that the source of these, uh, vitamins and mineral supplements are derived from natural sources and are not synthetically made. Was there, were you comparing natural and conventional? Were you going to talk about conventional next? Well, the conventional foods are uh, – a lot of the conventional food companies have really tried to get on the bandwagon of um, uh, of the interest in, in natural foods. You know, when we look at what's happening today, it's really amazing compared to what the situation was, say, 30 years ago, 30, 40 years ago where the idea of natural foods and health food was still considered kind of ludicrous. And and um, conventional food companies were only dipping their toes in the health food market. Today, there's so much interest by a much wider population in a healthy or natural diet that conventional food companies have really tried to use the uh, the language and in some cases, the ingredients um, coming from a natural foods market to, uh, to, to promote their own foods. But there are still very, very big differences between uh, a product that is um, made with a great deal of additives, that uses refined sugars, uh, that uses synthetically um, uh, derived uh, binders and other kinds of uh, uh, ingredients to make its foods. Um, but they can still slap on the label, you know, natural this or uh, loaded with vitamins and minerals or loaded with uh, whatever the ingredient of the day is uh, to try to capture that market that's interested in a more healthy diet. Where is the dividing line today between natural and conventional foods? It's much, much more blurred uh, than it ever was before. 
So that's both because those conventional food companies, those giant food companies that, that we're all familiar with, often have natural foods lines of their own. Um, many of them engaged in acquiring some of the health food companies of the past, or they have simply started new lines uh, that are about claiming to be uh, part of the natural foods market. On the other side, with the natural foods industry, the, there simply is a more complex manufacturing process going on, and that includes not just the kinds of ingredients and the ways of manufacturing that is happening, but also packaging. Uh, so you might have preservatives built into the cardboard or the plastic uh, that surrounds a food that is claiming to be natural. And the question then is, well, is this conventional or is it natural? There's also a blurring of the line in the kind of industrialized techniques that are now used to produce foods for the natural foods market. I think one example of this that has gotten a great deal of attention over the year uh, are, are bagged greens, uh, salad greens or spinach that has been pre-washed or pre-cut up. Uh, and it, it ended up proving to be very popular, uh, uh, with a, a lot of, um, a lot of consumers because they don't have to do that tedious work of washing spinach, uh, for themselves, for instance. But the kinds of techniques that are used to produce on a mass scale enough of these greens and then wash them in some kind of, um, often chemicalized, uh, cleaning substance, to try to protect them against pathogens and then bag them and ship them across great distances. More and more, this really resembles exactly what the conventional food market does. Uh, another way in which we see the blurring of the lines is how even your everyday supermarket or Walmart or Costco or these icons of the conventional retail industry are carrying natural foods. So it is certainly no longer the case that you have to go to a health food store and able to find these items. And so on the retail end, we also see a blurring of the lines between what is a conventional outlet and a natural foods outlet. These techniques that you mention, such as the washing of spinach and treating it with chemicals to prevent it spoiling, basically, and carrying pathogens to the ripening techniques that are used to force produce to ripen overnight so they can mm -hmm. ship it green and then have it look, quote-unquote, ripe when it arrives at the store, to the baby carrots, which are not really baby carrots, but are chemically treated uh, carrots that have been processed, fortified waters, the apples that are being held in nearly frozen storage for a year before they reach the store. Are those natural foods? Are those conventional foods? And who defines that? Well, that's a very good question, and there there is no single answer to it. It is a matter of great debate within the natural foods industry, and there are periodic attempts to try to bring greater regulation uh, to to these sorts of um, questions. Um, but but by and large, it is unregulated, at least by the government. What we have seen are the increasing proliferation of different kind of certifications. So what that means is that you have generally a, a private organization that will certify something as, uh, to give one example, made without uh, genetically modified organisms. Uh, so something called the non-GMO project, uh, you've perhaps seen the little logo on, on many food uh, products labels uh, to show that the ingredients uh, do, uh, were not genetically engineered in some way or another. So uh, it's, 
it, it's very difficult to really adjudicate these kinds of questions. And that becomes more so when you are talking about an expansion of the market. So one of the things I actually try to argue in my book is that uh, the 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 conflicts and controversies within the natural foods market were less about the profit motive per se, because you've had a market in place really since the 19th century for selling uh, and and uh, uh, creating foods. The problem is when you actually try to grow the market and expand your clientele uh, both quantitatively and also over greater and greater distances, that then the, uh, uh, in some cases, absolute need, um, and in other cases, at least the incentive to engage in these kinds of practices that you were just talking about, it becomes very difficult to avoid them. So how are you ever going to be able to supply people with the fresh so-called fresh uh, fruits and vegetables that they want all year round if these are not actually grown all year round. Well, you do it by storing them for months on end, and that often means treating them in some way, or you import them from halfway around the world because of the difference in growing seasons. So it's it's a uh, real dilemma for those who are are committed to natural foods principles, what to do about this. And it also, I think, helps account for the so-called local foods movement, the ways in which many people are trying to eat foods that are produced locally. And that also might mean foregoing foods uh, in the winter because they can't actually be uh, grown in those months, uh, at least within a local area. And that brings the challenge of if your area, which is most of the country in the United States, is unable to produce food in the cold weather months, then you are having to eat either foods that come from other areas, mainly the small bread baskets that we have, say, in Florida, Mm -hmm. and tropical and subtropical islands, Import them from other countries, or then you have to fall back on these fortified or packaged foods, and or, for example, frozen foods. Is that considered a natural food? Is that considered not to be natural because it's been frozen? Nothing in nature is usually frozen and then edible. Right. Well, if we look at the historical development of the natural foods industry, a very big change happened starting in the 1970s and really taking off into the 1980s. And prior to that time, a natural foods diet was considered extremely bland. It did not have a great deal of variety. Part of the reason it was mocked so much was because uh, uh, it was considered really very untasty, the kinds of foods that natural foods advocates were eating. But what happened in the 1970s, and in part this was the influence of a counterculture, a new generation of people interested in natural foods, is that there was a lot of experimentation with new styles of cooking, uh, new new ingredients or seasonings, many of which were taken from other parts of the world outside of the United States. And this really broadened uh, the palate, uh, so to speak, of natural foods followers. And, and we see a somewhat blurring of the line that happens in, say, the 1980s and 1990s between so-called gourmet foods and natural foods. You have a number of very well-known uh, restaurant proprietors who had very, very fancy restaurants, and they were well-known for having only the very freshest of ingredients and also very heavy on fruits and vegetables. So this was in many ways a wonderful development for the natural foods movement, but it also then created among consumers an expectation of having this wonderful variety of foods and having it year-round. 
Uh, so we see, as uh, you were just talking about, the development of frozen foods in the natural foods market. And that started to come about, uh, I think it was the 1960s or 1970s, when some uh, uh, health food distributors uh, started to carry frozen foods. And, and it really takes off a few decades later when you have families now often with two working um, adults in the family who don't have the time to cook from scratch uh, in the same way perhaps that an earlier generation did, and they really gravitate towards these kinds of frozen foods. I think today that the idea of a frozen food is widely accepted within the natural foods market. What distinguishes it from conventional frozen foods really has to do with the ingredients and, and to some uh, extent, uh, the, the forms of processing as well. So you mean, for example, the packaging and the phosphate and additives that they put into the frozen foods in order to stabilize them and lengthen yes, their yes. shelf lives? Yes, that's right. How did we get from a marginal group back in the 19th century that favored these natural foods to natural foods being more of a mainstream item and in some cases perhaps even elitist today? I think there were... Two historical developments in particular that can help to explain this. One goes back to the 1940s, 1950s. Natural foods are still very marginal, but you started to have a group of, um, of uh, health food lecturers and writers who were reaching a more mainstream audience. Uh, the person who maybe best exemplifies this was Gaylord Hauser. He was a, started as a lecturer and then, uh, became a best-selling author. Uh, he wrote a number of best-selling books, but the one that he, I, I think the, uh, one that sold the most, um, was Look Younger, Live Longer, which was published in 1950. And that title is very telling because what Hauser was trying to do was saying, if you adopt a health food diet, you're not just about trying to cure disease or uh, 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 solve the pains of growing older, but it's actually a way to look younger, look more glamorous, and live a longer life. And Hauser was really embraced by a number of celebrities, uh, especially those in Hollywood. He was very good friends with Greta Garbo. And the press loved to cover their friendship for a time they were erroneously uh, uh, said to be romantically involved. Um, but uh, there was a great deal of attention to Hauser because of his ability to um, uh, 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 to interact with uh, a European aristocracy as well as Hollywood celebrities. He was very charismatic. He drew huge crowds. Hundreds, if not thousands of people would come to hear him. And his message was very different from the past. He was saying, look, you don't really have to sacrifice much. Uh, this is not a lifestyle for people who are old, who are uh, unhealthy. This is a lifestyle for actually the most glamorous people that we know, such as Hollywood celebrities. So you had that kind of move, which really started to intrigue mainstream Americans. And many people were then experimenting in a very, very small way with some of the health food that people like Hauser endorsed, such as blackstrap molasses um, or wheat germ or a few other ingredients. So it was still quite marginal, but mainstream Americans were saying, well, maybe we can try this out a little bit. The second development happens in uh, a few decades later in the 1980s, 
I've already mentioned the way in which a counterculture in the 1960s and 70s started to take an interest in natural foods. Well, we know that the counterculture died down, but many of the people who were involved in that counterculture became, uh, first of all, they became parents of children and uh, retained some of their ideas about what it meant to have a good lifestyle that they wanted to impart to their children. And also some of those people involved in the counterculture became entrepreneurs of their own. Uh, and that included um, people who were starting natural food stores and other kinds of natural foods businesses. One entrepreneur who I profile in my book, uh, someone by the name of Sandy Gooch, who began a chain of natural food stores in the Los Angeles area beginning in the late 1980s, uh, excuse me, 1970s. And her chain called Mrs. Gooch's really revolutionized the presentation of natural foods because her stores were big, they were beautiful, they were airy. She had this extraordinary assortment and variety of foods that was totally unknown to most health food stores at the time. And she was making natural foods glamorous in many ways. And through that, attracting a much higher income group of consumers than had been typical for natural foods in the past. The uh, uh, chain that we are all very familiar with today, Whole Foods, which was started in Austin, Texas, again uh, started as a very small, started as a single store and then, and then was a very small chain. But along the way, it acquired Mrs. Gooch's as well as some other uh, natural foods market chains and adopted that style so that uh, the natural food store that Whole Foods represents today is something that we associate with uh, people of an upper middle class, people who are highly educated, uh, professionals uh, who want not just healthy food, but the very best food uh, for themselves and their families. So we've kind of gone full circle because this is what natural foods were at the beginning is what everybody was eating. And then we have now come back to the place where those foods that were natural at the beginning were considered the best and now we're at the place where everyone is striving to access those same kinds of foods which have become increasingly difficult to find in their actual natural state is that accurate well partly i think where i would um say something otherwise though is that i actually don't think that natural foods as we know it today or as we define it today would have been defined as the best. Uh, uh, certainly not since some um, um, uh, colonial conquest of North America, which is to say that in the past there was a, a division between the kinds of foods that most people ate and the kinds of foods that an elite ate. And elites ate more meat. Uh, they they may they would have eaten foods that uh, over time uh, we would come to understand as processed foods. So there's there's really been a great transformation I think in the kinds of foods that we understand as the best. Uh, and um, what is full circle though is I think the notion that the best foods are a food, a kind of food that not everybody has access to. And one of the probably more unfortunate developments uh, within the natural foods market is along with the mainstreaming of the concept of natural foods has come this association between natural foods and an elite. So that natural foods are now 
often more uh, expensive, uh, not always, but often they're going to be more expensive than conventional foods. And people who are, say, working class uh, are much less likely to have grown up with natural food styles of cooking. And they will perceive this often as a kind of food that does not really correspond to their um, their, their ways of eating, uh, their, their family routines, uh, so that there is a class divide and to some degree also a race divide uh, between those who eat natural foods and those who are more uh, likely to eat conventional foods. Where, when, how did the concept of organic foods pop up? That goes back to uh, England, uh, actually, uh, uh, in the early 20th century. But in the United States, the person who was maybe uh, most important for developing the notion of an organic food was Jerome Rodale, who ran uh, an experimental farm in Pennsylvania. And uh, he was actually involved in completely unrelated businesses before then. So he, he was quite an entrepreneur, but he developed an interest in certain kinds of farming techniques uh, that he then tried to replicate with his farm, um, farm in, in Pennsylvania. So the idea behind organic food is, first of all, a great deal of attention being paid to the soil. What goes into the soil? So we now will accept as part of organic gardening or organic farming that instead of synthetic fertilizers, you should be using compost, uh, a way of breaking down natural products and putting them back into the soil, and that this is going to provide a healthier environment for the growth of plants. The other part of organic farming is not using synthetic insecticides or herbicides. Uh, and people like Rodale back in, say, the 1940s were writing that this stuff is poison. Why would we ever want to put the stuff into us, ingest these poisons that are being used on an increasing sale in conventional agriculture? So... Rodale and a small number of others were promoting the idea of organic agriculture for several decades, but it was very, very small scale until the 1960s and 1970s when you get this growth of interest in natural foods more generally. Still, uh, well, actually, I guess it was because of that then that you also had a lot of fraud going on in the sale of organic organic goods. So because for so long it was not regulated, anyone could claim to be selling an organic avocado, uh, but there was no way really for the consumer to know uh, whether or not this was true. And so there were some voluntary efforts made to uh, certify that uh, something was grown organically but uh, I was only later on in the uh, later towards the um, latter part of the 20th century that there was a campaign to get federal intervention in this area. And there is the National Organic Program now that is run by the Department of Agriculture, which regulates how something can be defined and sold as organic. So if it is certified as organic, it means that farmers have had to go through this very complex process of transitioning farmland um, at, uh, into something that does um, that has not been using synthetic chemicals uh, for for growing uh, for growing their products and also other ways of, of growing and um, treating fruits and vegetables are regulated by this program it's it's expensive for a lot of farmers to get this kind of certification. And this is why smaller farmers might choose actually not to be certified as organic, and they'll use other kinds of terms such as no spray 
or integrated pest management or other, uh, other labels that are not regulated but are meant to indicate to the consumer that if not complying fully with organic regulations, at least they're not um, engaging in, in some of the more uh, controversial conventional methods of uh, producing uh, 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 their plants. And there still isn't universal agreement. There are a lot of questions that linger relating to the concept of organic, nanotechnology, any kind of genetic engineering, water that has been treated. Right. All right. of these questions are still outstanding, right? Many of them are. Uh, at least with genetic engineering, uh, genetic engineering, that is not allowed for organics. Uh, but we are constantly seeing new kinds of technologies developing, such as nanotechnology. And there are a lot of competing interests in the food industry as to what should be allowed within the national organic standards. So this is something that people in the natural foods industry pay a great deal of attention to, but it's extremely hard for consumers to be able to keep up with all of this. And, um, uh, and, and a lot of these controversies take years to get worked out. There's a period of negotiation and uh, uh, comments that might be gathered from the public or other stakeholders. And, and it's, it's a process that never really ends to define what is or isn't organic. And I think it's in large part because of the obvious complexity of this process that there has not been an attempt to regulate other kinds of terms such as natural. That would be even more difficult to try to attach some kind of regulated definition to uh, compared to something like organics. Where does this whole gluten issue fall into the equation? It's my understanding that one of the reasons that people have developed, that so many people have developed a, a reaction or an allergy to gluten, as many as 80%, according to some experts, is because of changes in the plant itself, that the wheat we eat today has nothing to do with our ancestral wheat and that our bodies are incapable of digesting it properly to varying degrees. Where, if anywhere, does it fall in the discussion that we're having today? I think that there is not a great deal of agreement on um, the extent of gluten intolerance. And I think initially people in the natural foods industry were very worried and wary about uh, the move away from gluten products, because really one of the mainstays of the natural foods industry has been grain products, uh, especially wheat-based, um, such as whole wheat breads, that kind of thing. Now, as you just said, there one of the theories behind gluten intolerance has to do with the ways in which people are not eating whole grains, but they're use, uh, using much more refined flours in their grain products. And that could potentially uh, help the natural foods market. But I think the, what we've primarily seen is the ways in which many grain manufacturers are simply expanding their offerings. And they're saying, okay, this uh, concern about gluten is probably not going to disappear altogether. And therefore, we're going to try to meet this market by presenting different kinds of, in some cases, ancient grains that people were unfamiliar with in the recent past as an alternative to wheat-based foods. So that they're trying to incorporate uh, alternatives to wheat and other gluten products within the natural foods market, uh, though I think that most of them would really just hope that the anti-gluten concern is um, is a phase or is a fad that is not going to be long-lasting uh, because it's it's very difficult for food providers 
to to maintain so many different alternatives and to have to try to communicate to consumers which foods are safe for them and which foods they should stay away from. What do you see when you look at your crystal ball as we move forward in this changing, fast-changing environment where consumers have more to say, but also where large corporations in the private sector are increasingly powerful, buying one after the other to make ever larger companies with more power in, among the politicians that they lobby with very organized and well-funded efforts. What do you see? Do you see any trends up ahead? Do you think that consumers through social media and activism are going to have increasingly stronger voices? What, what would you share with us in that regard? Well, it's it's such a dynamic field, and I think that we are going to see increasing fragmentation, uh, which is to say more and more divisions of the market and more niche products and niche definitions of the audience are going to be a continuing trend. Um, but I also think when you ask about the ways in which consumers are going to have a voice, I, I do think that this is one of the few consumer industries where uh, both activists and people who don't define themselves as activists but are simply concerned consumers uh, are actually going to have some say in the kinds of foods that they have access to. In part because this is also following trends elsewhere in the world. In Europe, uh, consumers uh, or or natural foods followers in general, I should say, uh, are are uh, they they have a real voice uh, in ways that are perhaps not as typical as the United States. But in the same way that we see uh, in uh, uh, globalization of um, sourcing of ingredients for American manufacturers, you also have globalization of markets. And to the extent that you have certain kinds of regulations in Europe that govern the kinds of foods that are sold there, you're going to have American producers that might be more inclined to follow those kinds of rules. On, on the American front, though, uh, I can think about the example of labeling of genetically engineered uh, ingredients as a good example of this. So the American government has sided with uh, conventional food manufacturers and agricultural producers in saying genetic engineering is not a health hazard and that there should be no reason whatsoever why consumers avoid genetically engineered products. But there has been such concern among an increasing number of consumers about the unknown health effects and environmental effects of these kinds of foods that they're saying, uh, we want to have that choice of avoiding these foods if we'd like. And therefore, we want labels to clearly identify whether or not there are uh, genetically engineered ingredients here. So despite the best efforts of a uh, large and powerful conventional foods industry, despite the best efforts of federal government, actually, uh, that is a conflict that is still ongoing. And I think that food producers, they're fighting against mandatory labeling laws, but they are exceeding, uh, in many cases, to consumer demand for this kind of information. So I actually think that this is a field where I, I don't want to make any firm predictions, but I do think that there is going to be a continued distinction between conventional and natural foods, uh, that the lines dividing them are not going to fall apart entirely, and there's going to be uh, expanding interest in a natural foods diet. In addition to the many endnotes and references that you list in your book, are there any particular 
books or websites or sources that you recommend for our listeners who want to gain a better understanding of this subject? Uh, boy, that's a hard question because the whole field of food studies has expanded so dramatically within, um, within academics and the numbers of, of, uh, uh, activist groups, uh, that are campaigning for one or, or another issue has also expanded dramatically. The number of trade associations that are out there, there are also um, so so many of them. And without giving it more thought, I, I hesitate actually to sort of single out uh, any any one or another. Uh, I guess my my answer to this would really be to to pick a kind of balanced uh, group of sources, which is to say. Those who are academics who take a more uh, sort of distanced view of these kinds of activities, as well as the activist groups who are more engaged with with more immediate kinds of campaigns. And to understand that everybody has an agenda. Sometimes it's overt, um, sometimes it's more hidden, um, but that this is an area where there are a lot of different kinds of agendas, financial, philosophical, political, that are in place, and it's worth working out what those are uh, in order to understand this very dynamic field. Thank you, Laura, for joining us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Thank you so much for having me. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Laura J. Miller, Ph.D., who is author of Building Nature's Market, The Business and Politics of Natural Foods, who discussed the evolution of the natural foods market. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.